on today's episode of Gathering the Kings. And I said, I don't really care what you like or don't like. This is about your shareholders. And so I was the only one that I know of that day that went and implemented that strategy over the next two year period. And during COVID, I had my most profitable year ever. You are listening to Gathering the Kings with Chaz Wolf, featuring fellow seven, eight, and even nine figure business owners who have real battle scars from business and life, but have prevailed as the king that they are designed to be. We welcome high-performing entrepreneurs to the stage in order to reveal the real of the real on what it takes to build a successful business today. We dissect the good and bad decisions they've made along the way that give a true and accurate picture of the journey of success and how you too can get there. Through this dialogue, you will learn the value of growing your network and surrounding yourself with power players and kings like today's guest. Grab your pen and notebook because we're about to dive in. All right, everybody. I'm Chaz Wolf. I got Chris Morin on the stage today. King stage. Welcome, brother. How are you? Chaz, I'm great, man. Thank you so much for having me today. A little bit rainy here in Connecticut, so this will brighten the day a little bit. Excited to be here. Brighten the day, man. Yeah, it rained all night last night, actually, here in Kansas City, which is a little odd for June, but uh, but we'll take it because it's been hot. Yeah, for sure. Hot, hot. Chris, I'm so excited for our conversation, but first, tell us what kind of business that you're in. What brings you here today? Yeah, man. Primarily a real estate investor, multifamily. We cover the spectrum actually. So I really have two companies with two entirely different focuses. One of which is Three Peaks Capital. You see the logo behind my head in the screen here. We are acquiring multifamily complexes in the Midwest, particularly right now. So we have a strong focus in Indiana, several markets across Indiana, Ohio, and Kentucky. We're doing a lot of business in Louisville. For example, we've got a 44 unit complex under contract in Louisville. We've got 40 units in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Nice. Got a couple of smaller assets in Indianapolis and quite a few in the pipeline in Louisville, probably another 250 units worth of property that we're putting offers in on. So very focused on that sort of small to mid-commercial multifamily marketplace. It's a great space because it's too big for the small guy and it's smaller than the hedge fund. So it's it's an opportunity zone. Spot, yeah, yeah, exactly. But then here in the Northeast where I live in Connecticut, I am continuing to focus on more of a small commercial residential multifamily portfolio. It's an opportunity for your less sophisticated investors to get involved with me in some smaller deals, right? Not everybody has $50,000 or $100,000 to toss into the table, but I create an opportunity for everyday individuals to get into great deals, you know, earn the same great returns that I enjoy, but I take all the risk, right? And I take on all the headaches and it's great for them. In particular, nice. right now, I'm focusing on student housing. I've got a very good presence in the multifamily space. So I'm trying to hedge a little bit, step into a new asset class, student housing in particular in Western Massachusetts, which is a stone's throw from where I live. I'm 15 minutes through from three colleges and each of them are literally hundreds to thousands of units shy on right. their student housing needs. So there's a big opportunity there to say you could take a three um, home or think of a, a triplex multifamily. And if there's four bedrooms each, I can turn that into a, a 12 unit apartment because I can rent by the bed and the economics there are very right. strong. So my investors earn tremendous returns. So that's a new space that we're growing into this year. That's awesome, man. We'll have, we'll have some stuff to talk about there. Potentially I run a very similar multifamily property myself, not for students, but for a transitional type of community here in Kansas oh, City. Yeah. So um, the most interesting thing that you said in all of that, outside of the fact that you're just crushing it in real estate, is that you called the Midwest Ohio and Kentucky. Bro, Kansas <laughs> City is the Midwest. Come That's on. That's fair. Now. That's fair. <laughs> Everybody I've met from like for, from Connecticut, East Coast, your Midwest is right there, Ohio, Kentucky. And to us, that's like 
a borderline East Coast. Like we're the Midwest, yeah. but it's just funny that you said that. I'm so, uh, <laughs> we're going to have a lot to dive in here. Before we get into your, to your history though, and like how you've built this incredible, actually couple of businesses, I want to know first, why are you still pushing? Like you obviously have been successful. We don't just have anybody on. You go through a little bit of an interview process before we get you on here. Why are you still pushing? Like, why is there still gas in the tank? You don't have enough. Like, why are you still? Yeah, I ask myself the same question sometimes when I'm burning out late at night. It's just this weird obsession with building wealth. And I think a part of what keeps me ticking is like in real estate in particular, the, the barrier to entry just to get in is very low and the barrier to scale is very low. So if you're looking at the roadmap and you're saying, yeah, I got a hundred units. Now I go to a thousand or 2000. Um, it's really quite simple. To be honest with you, all you need is a little persistence and the willingness to go out there and, and act and talk to a lot of people is really what it boils down to. Yeah, it's just an obsession with building wealth. And to be honest too, I'm always motivated a little bit by the fear of the unknown, right? There's always the, the next recession around the corner. And so I'm always thinking, am I, am I overbalanced or overskewed in this particular asset class or this particular market? Do I need to go buy more over here? So I'm always looking to hedge and protect other assets, right? And I think I owe that to my investors who really, my business wouldn't be where it is without them. So I always say my number one priority in my business is to preserve the wealth of my shareholders essentially and grow that wealth. And when I do, I, I see returns and as well. Yeah. It's just this obsession with growing wealth, but also protecting from the unknown. Yeah. I love both of those. Very practical. Is there a reason why you have or obtain this obsession for wealth or hedging? I think they're both, we could put them in the same category, really. It's preparation for the future. Is there a reason that you're trying to prep? That's a funny question because it's weird. I think about this. So I'm going to take you all the way back to grad school. I was studying. So I have a biochemistry undergrad degree. I was getting a master's for education. So I was a high school science teacher at one time, but I knew wow. early on that for some reason I was like, yeah, I want to go build a multi-million dollar portfolio someday. Now, mind you, I come from a small farm town. My parents even filed bankruptcy at one time. Like, there was no financial literacy in my home. There was nothing. I didn't read books or see infomercials back then, but I was just right. driven to, to get into real estate. So I started at a really young age and I can't really nail the genesis of it, but it was always there. And ultimately, I just want to build this ecosystem that will allow me a lifestyle, right? I think a lot of people always say the answer to that is I want a freedom. I love working hard. I don't really want any kind of freedom right now, but eventually I will. So I want to make right. sure that I've got something in place that will afford that for myself and all of my loved ones. And again, I guess I'm an anxious individual, so I'm always wondering what could happen. And, and again, the next recession is always around the corner. And so I'm always trying to think like that. And I'll give you a really good example, actually. In 2015... I was at I was at a mastermind with a bunch of real estate investors, local guys here in Connecticut, folks who all have 100 units or more. So they're real players in the space. And I said, hey, let's plan for the next recession. We know they come every 10 years and potentially the next one's five years away. It might take some time to, to implement some things. And you start going around the table and people start saying things like you can screen better and get the right tenants and you buy properties in good areas. And those are all the knee-jerk reaction answers you would expect, right? And I said, what if there's a total loss of income? What are you going to do? That's not really going to save you and it's certainly not going to preserve the wealth of your shareholders. So one of the ideas that I suggested was we should implement Section 8. We should either take some of the units that we have and turn them over to Section 8 or acquire some buildings and roll them into the portfolio because that's guaranteed income. And the idea was to figure out what percentage would you need that in a total loss of income, you were making enough money to cover all of your debts and still repay your investors. That day, a bunch of people said, oh, Chris, I don't want Section 8. I hate Section 8. Yeah, I don't think it's for me. And I said, I don't really care what you like or don't like. This is about your shareholders. And so I was the only one that I know of that day that went and implemented that strategy over the next two-year period. And during COVID, I had my most profitable year ever. Oh. And my shareholders benefited from that. So I went on a little bit of a tangent, but yeah. yeah. 
Super good. I love how you think, man. It's not negative as in don't take action. It's, hey, let's be real about what the future looks like. And I think every entrepreneur has this back and forth play, whether they're in real estate or another niche of optimism. And you have got certain guys, I'd probably fall a little bit more on the optimistic side where I'm like, just always trying to think about how it could be. But then I have to remind myself and some guys don't remind themselves very often of what actually could it be. So I think that there's a healthy balance there for sure. And I think that every successful entrepreneur has done both. Uh, I don't think you can do just be optimistic and you can not just be pessimistic or negative about a possible outcome. You've got to have a good balance of what it actually looks like. So I appreciate that perspective. You said in there that you used to be a teacher. So how do you go from teacher to entrepreneur? Tell us that story. Yeah. So it's, it's a funny one. It ended quite abruptly. I had a couple of years under my belt because you, you do student teaching and stuff as you're going through college and your master's year, but I only did one full year outside of that. And I decided I was just going to, I was going to leave and take the leap of faith. And it's funny because at the time I was reading, like, what are all the different types of business careers that you can have out there? Cause I wasn't quite ready yet to just launch into entrepreneurship full-time okay. to make a long story short. I stumbled on this career they call consulting and there's these firms, McKinsey, Boston Consulting Group, who hire all these Ivy Leaguers. I was like, you know what? I'm going to go work for them. And I started telling people this and they're like, bro, you're just a teacher. Like they hire Ivy Leaguers. You don't know anything about business. I networked my way into one of those companies and they basically give you a business education that really can't be replicated by any other business school. So I started learning a lot. And my path was always, or at least my 22, 23-year-old mind at the time was telling me, I'm going to go learn everything I can about optimizing business operations. Then I'm going to go do it for myself. And and that's exactly what I did. I never took no for an answer. Like you were saying before, it's you got to maintain that strong, healthy dose of optimism because nobody else is going to do it for you. And you've got to focus on the solution, not the problem. And I got myself into right. a consulting firm. I learned as much as I could. I grew in the leadership ranks. And meanwhile, I started buying books and courses. Didn't waste much time, but I think I dumped 15000 and to credit cards and to some courses. And yeah, I started hanging bandit signs, if you're familiar with those. And I remember the first, I was struggling. I was doing all forms of marketing and I think I was doing a little bit too much. I was really disorganized sure. and struggling. And that's when I had to start figuring out how to hand work off. So maybe we can get into some of that, right? Because it's, you got to surround yeah. yourself with a team, but that's right. You know, I'll never forget the day I get that first call. I was scrambling. I think I was at work in Detroit because I was a traveling consultant and this contractor calls a, you know, off a bandit sign and says, hey, are you one of those guys that flips properties. I was like, yeah, of course. And mind you, I was like a week into a course I had never even <laughs> seen. I didn't even know what a purchase and sale contract looked like. I was like, oh right. yeah. So I fly home on Thursday and I meet him and I'm like, I was ready to go and tell him I didn't have a contract. Thank God he brought one because he worked for some investors. And he's like, you got your financing lined up? I'm like, oh yeah, I hadn't talked to a bank. I had no idea how I was going to raise the down payment for the property. But that's probably another story, but I'll tell you some, yeah. and some conversations and one fateful meeting in a, in a Starbucks, one thing led to another and I met an accredited investor who became a go-to source of income for me to start funding my flips. But uh, wow. Yeah. Dude, okay, so <laughs> I said a lot. We all have a crazy story as entrepreneurs. Let's just say that. But, bro, what you just said, I was like tracking with you, like the whole like just like just one thing to the next. And what I loved about it the most is that you had no idea what you were doing. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. Which I just I, the reason why I say that is not to obviously downplay because obviously you've been super successful since, but to give hope to the person on the other end listening, going, you're running a business right now. There are days, sometimes weeks and even months where you feel like, what am I doing? I don't know. Maybe you know your trade. Maybe you know how to market. Maybe you know how to clean floors. Maybe whatever the niche is. But we're talking about running the business. (laughs) 
Yeah. You don't know what you're doing. And the reality of it is, is that you don't need to right now, but you do need to. And that's what I would, that's what I got from that story, which is you had zero clue, but you still took action. You still met the guy, which then turned to another guy, which then turned to another relationship, which turned to a conversation. So obviously you got good at communication and networking relationships have sounded like basically they've been everything to you. Somewhere in there, you learn some negotiation. Somewhere in there, you learn some process management to be able to do flips. Obviously, you probably got that from being a consultant, but you pieced all these things together. Yep. And I just think that's incredible. So I want to pull out specifically somewhere in there, a good decision that you made along the way that you think that would be applicable to the listener. What'd you do that was just like, boom, I do this over and over again. Oh man. First and foremost, like just to come to mind actually, because you, okay. you said something like you were, you were highlighting the fact that I was just like moving forward on faith, like focusing on what I can control, but not really knowing what I was doing. But I think one thing I want to highlight is there's always going to be an element of that. Like even as we mature in our businesses, right. And you probably can relate. That's right. There's that imposter syndrome, even CEOs of 100%. fortune 100 corporations, right. They always have that imposter syndrome. They feel like at one point, am I not really good enough or is somebody else going to discover I'm a fake so there's always this element of what you're doing is new, even for you. And I think two, it reminds me of two good decisions. One is one of the reasons why I was able to do that with confidence and I was scared. You know what I was going to say <laughs> every step of the way, like, don't be fooled to think that like I was 100% confident and I wasn't scared. I was very scared. Yeah. But the decision I made was to surround myself with the people who knew the things that I didn't invest right. in masterminds and go and build a team and make sure that you're not the only one putting eyes on the decisions that you're making. So when That's ultimately right. I bring a deal together before I sign on the deadline, there's somebody better than me overseeing that and saying, yeah, Chris, this is good. Or there's some risk here. So look out for that. The other good decision that I've made over time is to like find ways to very quickly hand things off to other people. Yeah, But I think some people might be rolling their eyes because like, I'm brand new. I don't have enough income. Yeah, I can't hire anybody. And I think that's focusing on the problem. There's always a way to find somebody who's willing to take a piece of your business, perhaps in exchange for a piece of your business. Maybe you incentivize them through income and performance. Or you say, hey, listen, we seem very aligned in vision and philosophically aligned in terms of where this business should go. I like you, you like me. If you do these things, I'll give you percent ownership of your company, right? I'm making yep. it up. Maybe you're not willing to do that. But the point is, if you're willing to get creative and if you're willing to have the conversation with other people, they will be willing to help and take some of that work off. That's not best meant for you either because it's not strategic in nature or it's just not something you're good at. So I think yeah. the short of it is sooner than you think you're ready, you're ready. Sooner than you think you can, you can find ways to hand off the work, sit down and write down all the stuff that you do on a day to day in column B, write your name and column See if it should be somebody else, write their name or write VA, right? And then figure out how to make that happen. But uh, you can always make it happen. And one real quick thing too, like just a, an example of how you can get creative. Even now, like I have plenty of income. I can hire somebody full-time, put them on a salary. But I recently met a guy who's struggling to stand up in this business. He wants to get into multifamily and he's very well-spoken. He's a good BS artist but he's not organized and he lacks some of the skills that I have that he needs. And so I said, listen, we'll call him John Doe for anonymity. I said, listen, you're really good at talking to people. How about this? You go talk to people. I'll give you a pitch. If you can get them interested in multifamily and start setting up appointments, I'll close them down as investors. And for everybody who ends up writing a check into the business, I'm going to pull you in. So I've just incentivized him based on his strength. So he's motivated to do it. He's setting up appointments like crazy right now. I'm raising capital right. to go buy more real estate and I'm going to bring him into the deal. So there's always ways to make it happen. Always. I love it. The open-mindedness that takes the slow yeah. down. Let me open up the box, right? Let me yeah. come out of the box. How did you get there? Was that from 
meeting other people, masterminds, books, and stuff that you just mentioned? Or was that the way that you were raised? Like, how did you value that? I just knew I couldn't do it on my own. I was getting on a plane on Monday mornings and flying to some distant city to work long weeks as a consultant and coming home on Thursday nights. I had very little time to dedicate to the business and that yeah. window that I was home. And so I would pitch realtors to work for me, contractors to work for me, and I would set up workflows. And basically, I would, send out, I would send out direct mail marketing to folks. Hey, I want to buy your house. Call this number. They would get a college intern on the phone. Meanwhile, I'm in Detroit, okay? They'd get a college intern on the phone who was trained to ask a certain set of questions, pass it off to a contractor to go out there and do up a scope of work, who'd get in touch with a realtor to run some comps and start figuring out the contract. I come home and sign on the dotted line. So I just knew it wasn't going to happen without doing that. And I didn't quite know at first, but I had to sit down and rack my brain and come up with a plan and then bounce it off somebody who knew better than me and said, yeah, Chris, I think that could work. And again, it's just, I sat down and dared to have those conversations with people. Hey, this is my right. plan. This is where I'm going. Do you want in on this? I don't have any money to pay you, but if you play this role, I'm going to compensate you well on the other side. And you just got to, you've got to make them believe that you're going to succeed and they'll be willing to get up. Yeah. I love the simplicity of your first answer or the first half of that answer, which is I just knew I couldn't do it myself. We've talked about this a lot, whether it be on the show or just with other entrepreneurs, this is a huge key factor to scaling. So the simplicity that you just simply said, I knew I couldn't do it on my own. That is like a, an ego block, I think for a yeah. lot of people. I think I experienced that even though I was scaling and I had multiple businesses, I gave myself more credit than I was deserving of because I am a talented individual. I can do lots of things at once. But all that that did is really in the long term hurt me because I should have given it away. Like you said, you can give it away sooner. You can get there sooner. You can do it sooner than you think. And you're probably right around the corner from where you need to be. And if you make that move and lean into building a team or, or having someone come on as an equity partner or whatever it is, like yep. looking for the future of growth, not necessarily how can I get it all done myself and save money. They're just completely two different mindsets. And I don't think I've ever met a seven, eight, nine figure owner who it's just them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't even I don't know if that's possible. So I think that just the MS of what you're saying is the attitude really is I had to get out of my own way. I had no ego. I realized from the beginning, even though I didn't know all the different pieces, I just knew that, okay, here's what I know. I need to find some other people to help me out with the thing. Yeah. yeah. So let's flip the coin. What about a bad choice? What'd you do that just almost ruined it all? Yeah. It's almost rolled it all as soon as it, it started. And this, again, this takes me back to the roots. I just want to remind the listeners, this was probably 2010, literally a year after I got into the business. I was trying to find mentors, surround myself with people who knew the things I didn't. A gentleman who was a very wealthy real estate investor out of Boston um, was here in Connecticut because he was going through a divorce and uh, he's from Connecticut and he was working as a realtor really complicated story for him because all of his assets were in a trust. The wife just got the, in the daughter's name, the wife just got the daughter. So he essentially lost everything overnight. Really weird situation. But anyway, he brings me a deal at one point that I buy and he's mentoring me. And I'm like, wow, this is great. Like this guy, he's so smart. And he really knew, you talked to this guy and he knew he knew how to just create wealth. But I think I leaned into his advice a little bit too much and he convinced me that I needed him when I really didn't. And so I think there's an element of, there are certainly people that are smarter than you, or no more than you because of their maturity and exposure in the industry. doesn't mean they're smarter than you. doesn't mean your instincts are wrong. Sure. And so here I am at 27 years old, but this guy's got it all figured out. He's worth millions. I just took everything he said for gospel. He had convinced me on a very simple, small rehab project to, to overbuild Boston. It's a different kind of market. If you overbuild relative to everything that's around you, you could still command a higher price because you got a higher net worth buyer who's going to go in and they're just going to pay more. 
good old fashioned fundamentals don't work like that in neighborhoods and towns, right? If you overbuild, doesn't mean you're going to get $100,000 more than the house next door. You're going to get what you can get for that area. He convinced me to overbuild. He ended up angering some of my contractors who walked off site. I need to get a new crew. And of course, the new crew says, oh, this was done wrong. We have to redo it. So very quickly, scope had just exploded. We went way out of budget. It was now going beyond the timeline. My lender was starting to call. It was a private money lender, and he was calling the loan due. And so I was running some legal issues there. And then ultimately we had to sell for a loss, right? And so then the lender came after me. So one thing kind of led to another. I did suffer a pretty large loss on that. And it wasn't just, I actually walked away with a $100,000 tab Wow. that I had to pay off over time. And of course you weren't making money during the deal. Right. It was a big lesson. And I would say the even bigger loss from that was that individual who was the lender who had lost trust in me in that process was the one who I found who started the whole thing. And this guy was willing to put a million dollars a month on the street. He was very high net worth. So a lot of lessons came out of that. Had I given up, I would have really missed out on a whole lot more over a period of time. But I learned a lot and I learned to to trust myself a whole lot more along the way and get a few mentors, not just lean on one. And so that was a bad decision, but a really good lesson over time that resulted in a heck of a lot of money. Yeah. I think what I'm pulling out from that is obviously the fact that you turned it into multiple lessons, so that's a no brainer, but the idea there that it's almost like you yielded, you were yielding, even though your instincts were telling you, wait a second, it's taking too long. That's right. This doesn't make sense. And so how would you say for the guy that's listening right now, who's in a situation where maybe it's a partner, maybe it's a mentor and it's good. It's not like that guy did you wrong. There's a misalignment. So knowing what you know now, what would you say to yourself or the guy who's in a similar situation where there's just a misalignment with a partner and do they need to get out? Do they need to just realign? What would you suggest that they do? Yeah, that's a really good one. I think you're definitely always going to have those moments of misalignment on your business, but I think if it could have that kind of a potential outcome, where it's not only going to impact revenue, but you're going to incur some kind of loss. I don't think it's inappropriate to seek some kind of additional third-party counsel, right? Let's go bounce this off of some other people in the industry. Yeah. Ideally, you would be in some kind of a mastermind or some other kind of group where you can go and get the thoughts of other experts. But I think that's totally reasonable and it's okay to confront them and get that. It's just, that's the way I would approach it today. And I would certainly stick to my guns if I felt like I was right in that situation. Yeah. I love that answer. It made me think of just some consulting that we've done. We've had brought in just for planning purposes, but the guy that we brought in does confrontational (laughs) consulting (laughs) as well, which like partners, uh, partnerships are like marriage. And sometimes you just need to be able to uh, communicate differently or better or more openly. And, And so I think that's great advice to be able to have a third party. Love the idea, obviously, of a mastermind and being able to surround yourself with other people. I like to think of our group as like a board of directors. And so it's, I know I got close. They're, they're not maybe like in the day to day, but I know I can get to them. I can get a quick answer and have truth. It's so funny you say that because when I talk about the people I surround myself with, I often will refer to them as my board of directors. Yep. That's the way it rolls. Good stuff, man. Okay. So let me know about a process, right? What process do you have now that you've been through some ups and downs that you've been uber successful? What do you take a decision through now? Is there a discipline that you have process? Oh, a decision. Yeah. It's funny because good leadership, I do believe in good old fashioned intuition. Like you just, you got street smarts in your craft and your field, but I think decisions need to be data-driven, 
right? In real estate, you can't just say, I'm going to buy this property because it looks like a nice area. You got to really get a sense for, is the population growing? Is it stagnant? Is it actually declining? Is job growth happening? Is wage growth happening? All these things can ultimately impact the value of your investment over time. And there's certain underlying economic fundamentals. You got to make sure they're in place. So it may look like a great asset on the outside. It might look like a great area, but there are other things that can kill your deal if you're not paying attention to the right data. So that's just a very specific real estate decision. So the process is to make sure that you're looking at the data and your decision-making. For me, in terms of how I execute, and that's a little bit of a different nuance to your question. I like to look at it from an agile perspective. I like to create 30 to 60 day action plans. Some people will say, here's where I want to go in a year. Here's how I'm going to get there. For me, it's what do I want to do in the next 30 days? And what am I going to do to get there? I have a huddle with my team every single morning. Where are we in those very concrete and time-bound goals? And you find that, and of course, then you have to decompose them into something much smaller, much more tangible, right? Something you can actually achieve. But a couple of things happen. You're much more likely to achieve it. You're ultra focused on smaller steps. And, and then it also allows you to pivot along the way if you're wrong. But when you achieve success in those steps, you're just continuing to reinforce that positive energy. But when something feels so far off because you're marching towards a year-long goal and you don't really know how to measure if you're getting there, yeah. you can get real discouraged real fast, right? So you can almost feel the success happening sooner in smaller increments, if that makes sense. A hundred percent. Yeah. No, you just took basically, like you said, the ability to not only just make good decisions, but then how do we win daily? Yeah. Because that's really what a good decision is. Like, a, it's a win. Okay, got a W on that one, right? Yeah. Oh, we got an L over here. That one hurt. But if you can win every day, multiple times a day, the smaller targets, like you're talking about, bringing success closer to home and more often. I've got this saying that I say, it's in my, one of my workbooks. It's that uh, confidence is the drug <laughs> and winning is the dealer. And it's because you need confidence. Yep. You need confidence and it just, it pours gasoline on everything, but how do you get it? You just got to get wins, man. You got to get wins. Right. I love That's what right. you're saying. Okay. Are you ready for the speed round, my brother? Let's do it. One word answers if possible, but I might okay. dig in. <laughs> okay. <laughs> First question is if you could only pick one metric in either of your businesses, both of your businesses, just one to track forever and ever, what would it be? Offers. Ooh, offers being made. If you're not making offers, you're not making money. You're not filling the pipeline. That's right. Pipeline's got to be full. That's right. Okay. And because you know what the pipeline looks like, that then in your brain goes like all the way down in the math and you can project what the rest of the year looks like money-wise or team-wise, all that. Yeah, a little bit. It's funny because it depends on the line of business. On, on the commercial front, it's not so much a revenue target. It's more... Sure. The number of doors. So we might say, so like our mantra right now is 2,500 doors by 2025. There you go. And so we know how many we have to hit within a given year. And so depending on what that pipeline looks like, it could be any number because some deals are 40 units, some are 50, some are 150. So we reverse engineer it that way. 100%. Love it. Okay. What book would you recommend that a six figure business owner read trying to scale to seven? Oh man, this resonates with so much that we talked about today. Who, not how? This one. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one. It's funny. I have the audible version. I listen to it. I try to go back to it at least quarterly because it's just so yeah. important. Yeah. Such a great book. You're right. Okay. And you've already mentioned your mastermind time, <clears throat> excuse me, already. But the question is, do you intentionally mastermind or network with other entrepreneurs and why? Yeah, absolutely. It's the, I think it's the same for any business. If you're at 100 doors and you want to get to 1,000, you got to hang out with somebody who's at 1,000 or 5,000, right? You can get there 
but it's a lot like trying to do your business on your own. There's just, when you surround yourself with people who are at the next level, your mindset changes, your behaviors change, the way you think change, your life changes, right? So it's just really important to make sure you're carving out the time to get with those folks, get in the room, get at the table, share your problems, share your resources and see what they have to offer. I think if that's difficult, and again, I really encourage folks to do that. It is life-changing. There's always local stuff that you can do too. It's just really, for me personally, for example, right here in Hartford, Connecticut, I just attended an event I hadn't been to in years. Some people might say, oh, it's more beginners, but I tell you, there's always something to be learned from everybody else, regardless of what level they're at. So I make sure I sync up with everybody. Quick story. I was in that room and there was a new investor in there and he was an attorney and he realized, gosh, this business isn't really for me, but I like Chris. Hey, Chris, can I invest through you? I raised money in that meeting because I went that day. So things happen. You can't discount anyone. Yeah. I love that. Just, you actually said it both ways. You said, if you're trying to get to a thousand, you got to get around the guy that has five. But then in the same breath, you said, I'm I'm trying to get around the guy that has none because you never know where that relationship is going to take me. So I think understanding the value of other people's knowledge but then also understanding of just the value of other people. That's right. And you don't know what they know and you don't know who they know and right. you just depends. And so in order for you to figure those things out, you got to get around them, whoever they are. Yep. Love that perspective. Okay. <clears throat> Last question is this. If you lost it all, Chris, all your doors are gone. <laughs> what would you do, man? I would get right back in it. I'd get right back in it. I would, assuming I lost my team, I would find somebody at one of these events, like-minded individuals, same philosophy, same vision, say, hey, I'm good at this, you're good at that, let's divide and conquer, and create that 30-day action plan, like you said, get the W every single day before you know it Trip adds up to a big puddle over time. It really doesn't take that much at all to, to recreate success. Yeah, I love that. For the guy that just heard you say that, and he's thinking, well, yeah, easy for you to say because you've done it. And for him, he wants it but he just hasn't gotten it yet. Is there something blocking him? Is there something that you would give to him as a parting note of here's the one thing I'd give to you to get past where you're at, that you've been at forever? What would you say? Here's what comes to mind. The only thing that separates a new person from me or from me and somebody else that's above me is action or a slightly different type of action, right? Actions are completely within our control. So it's a matter of making the decision. I'm going to, I'm going to make some phone calls today. Or I'm going to go find a partner or I'm not. Because those are barriers that you can solve when you've got somebody next to you. That's the easy answer. And it's really that easy. And I just think I would challenge people to stop and focus. Are you creating excuses or are you going to lean into that action and take that action? And then I think if you can get clear on your goals and create what you think is a plan, you might say, I don't really know what the plan is to succeed. Here's steps one, two, or three are very vague to me. The most important thing you can do is document your goals and document what you think that plan is. Then you can go to, again, a mastermind or some kind of local group, right? And say, hey, here's my plan. What do you think? Too many people come to folks like me in those masterminds and tell me what to do. And it just turns me off, right? I'm not going to, like, I went through hell and back to get where I am. I'm not going to just hand it over to you, but I'm motivated by the guy who took the time to think through his own goals and his own plan. And even if he's like way off, now I'm compelled to help him be like, hey, listen, man, here's what... I like what you're thinking there. Your logic's in the right place, but really you should focus on that. Like I'm more inclined to give him help, but the point is all that's in your control. So what are you going to do? Yeah. Love that. Writing down the things that you, whether you, like you said, whether you have the plan altogether or not formulating it to the best of your ability right now, and then committing to it, writing it down and then taking action steps. It couldn't get any more simple than that, but also usually what's hard is pretty simple because most people just, it's easy to not do it because it's easy to do it. So I think that writing them down, formulating it, because guess what? It's going to change. 
It's going to change yeah. next week. It's going to change this year. Like your targets change all the time. And, and that keeps people from taking action. And so I love what you just said, man, just the simplicity of just, you just got to start. You just got to, you just got to take action. So I appreciate the value that you've brought here, Chris. I hope that, that the listener was paying close attention, man, because you've brought some principles here today that have been encouraging. How can, if someone wanted to reach out to you, they want to invest with you. They want to talk real estate. They want to pick your brain about who, not how, or building systems teams. How, how can they reach you? Yeah. So Definitely on Facebook, Chris Morin, right? K-R-I-S, guys, that's not with a C-H. Friend me, I'm very responsive there. I think you will you can model my behaviors. You'll see how I post and how I'm visible and vocal. I'm active online to attract people and conversations and investors. But ultimately, I think you guys have the link to one of my sites, right? I don't know if you're going to post that with the podcast. Yeah. But yep. for those who might have an interest in real estate or learning more about how they can deploy some of the hard-earned capital, right? So as a business owner, you're working your tail off. You're making a lot of sacrifice to earn your hard-earned money. And then the more you make, the more Uncle Sam wants to sneak in there and grab. One of the benefits of real estate investing is you can invest with a partner like us, okay? Now you're earning cash flow. So you're actually growing your income but you get to claim depreciation. It's a phantom expense, as we like to say in the real estate world. It's just something that old Uncle Sam allows us to say, this building is losing its valuable life because it's aging, but the reality is that's not happening. So you get to claim a loss on paper, which means you've essentially increased your income, but you've lost income on paper. So you get to keep more of it, right? So it's just one of many benefits that folks like the listeners here on the call can enjoy when they partner with us. So there's a link there. I'd encourage you to check it out, start learning more about how you can become a passive investor with us. And then of course, if there's no interest there and you just want to discuss business in general, like I said, sync up with me on Facebook. I always love helping people where I can. That's cool, brother. I so appreciate just your willingness to serve. It's It speaks of your character and, and you're doing deals, man. You guys are growing. Twenty. I like the 2,500 by 20, 2025 target that you mentioned. I can only imagine here in the next couple of years that we stay connected and that target gets hit. So it's been encouraging, inspiring, and uh, bro, we wish you nothing but success. We really appreciate you being here. Thanks, man. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Gathering the Kings today. I hope that you were able to pull out a few nuggets to go apply into your business right away. More importantly, though, I hope that you're realizing that it takes more to be successful than just being by yourself, doing it all on your own, carrying the weight all by yourself. What I have realized, not only in my own journey from multiple businesses and multiple different industries, and now interviewing literally over two or 300 other very successful seven, eight and nine figure business owners is that it's tough to do it alone. And so Gathering the Kings literally exists to bring together successful entrepreneurs. In fact, we are putting together 1000 Kings specifically who are grateful, but not done. We're intentionally assembling kings who fight tooth and nail for their business, family, and communities. And here's what we believe, that in the pursuit of excellence in those areas, that it ignites within us the responsibility to govern power and forge a lasting legacy. So if that relates and, and resonates with you, and you know that you need people around you, sharp, qualified, other very successful business owners, I want you to go to gatheringthekings.com. I want you to take a look at what we're doing and see if it makes sense for you to be part of our pursuit to 1,000 Kings. Talk soon.